Carlo, you got a new avatar, buddy. I capitulated. <laughs> the, the scales of justice now. I, by the way, I, that a video of you singing was amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, uh, we come to this space from different backgrounds, and uh, it, you got me reminiscing when you put that uh, video up of you DJing. That avatar is actually an NFT that I dropped a few months ago. It's a totally free mint, no royalties. It's just anything and anyone that supports uh, crypto lawyers in the space. It's kind of like just a great little avatar that I put out there. How long did you sing for? Oh, man, I did that all through college and law school. Um, that was always my weekend side hustle. Like casual opera weekend side hustle kind of thing going on. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Definitely gave me uh, a whole different perspective on the world. And actually, believe it or not, you know, Sinatra is obviously a big influence, but Sinatra and the way he approached lyrics and interpreting songs gave me a lot of tools to use in the courtroom when it came to juries. His presence, you know, that 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 ability to captivate an audience was a was a skill that I definitely am grateful I learned. Yeah, Mario ran. You guys might have missed it. I posted a like randomly a video from my DJ days, and he responded with, "This is what I used to do," and it was him singing. It was amazing. You tweeted a video of you DJing. At some point, uh, there was a video that Emmy found of me like scratching at something, and I uh, posted it yesterday, like it had been posted before. And he responded with, "I said this is what I used to do before I'm doing this," and then uh, I was like, "This is what I used to do." People here are multi-talented, man. It's crazy. Nice. Big in Japan, sir. Big in Japan. Huge for six months. <laughs> um, gone, gone but forgotten. Gone but also forgotten. Yes. Should we put the sailor, uh, the sailor purchase in the title? Probably. I mean, the guy is relentless, right? Third biggest, uh, unbelievable. Third biggest purchase he's ever made. Yeah, it's pretty major. Yeah, it's big. I would change and below the uh, cur below the current price. You know that never happens. Everybody loves to say that whatever the price he says he bought at, uh, it's usually uh, above whatever the price is currently, and it was in the thirty sixes. So good job. Yeah, I'm just adding in. Yeah, that's a bit unfair. He's always it's fine. totally. Of course, it's unfair. <laughs> it's, just, it's absolutely ridiculous. But man, did you say it was his third biggest? I actually this, haven't looked. Biggest, that's, that's, this is his third biggest purchase ever. My, money. In Bitcoin or in dollars? In dollars. dollars, yeah, yes. in dollars. The third biggest purchase ever. Dude, was this a, I, I didn't really dig into it because uh, it happened like right before I did YouTube. Was this a result of that $750 million that like was announced he was raising a few months ago? Uh, is that where the money came from? Because it just seems like there's unlimited dry powder. I, I don't know, but I mean, I guess it's that maybe plus some company profits. Unbelievable! Like just casually buy six hundred million worth of Bitcoin on a you know random Tuesday. You know the best thing is like the best thing is we kind of know that sailors never going to sell. So it's like we know whatever's in there is is in there to stay. But do you remember the narratives of all like all the times he was going to get liquidated or he was going to be forced to sell, and if it went to twenty or if it went to seventeen, it was finished, and it was just yet another just complete nonsensical thing that everybody covered and talked about for months that just wasn't true and didn't happen. Crypto, bear market, Twitter, FUD, bro. 
No, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's no. I wouldn't say it's fun. He gets liquidated. He gets liquidated. He doesn't choose to be he liquidated. Couldn't, he, he couldn't get liquidated. But he couldn't be. He couldn't. That was the point. Yeah, it was people doing bad napkin math who didn't understand how he had actually purchased it that became like a massive mainstream narrative and story about what was going to happen. And then when he clarified, I think he said he could like he wouldn't get liquidated unless it went below like. Three thousand, three or four grand at the time, right? So three thousand. But you know, a lot of people don't understand the micro strategy business. They think that micro strategy just buys Bitcoin, but they don't. Because what they do is they borrow money cheap, and they they buy Bitcoin, and then they pay. The, so they'll pay like a six or seven percent interest, or three percent, or zero percent interest, or whatever they took their their loans at, and they're leveraging it to buy Bitcoin. So it's like. It's like the best business model in the world. It's like a leveraged ETF of Bitcoin. And most people don't understand that. Yeah, the first time I ever interviewed him must have been uh, mid-2020. It was right, the first week. Nobody knew who he was. And he bought Bitcoin. And uh, you know, he went on his podcast roadshow and became like the uh, captain of all Bitcoiners. Um, he basically broke down. For the first time, I'd heard it so sort of clearly stated the playbook for billionaires, which you just sort of described. But, you know, he kind of laughed about how easy it is for him to get uh, basically sub 1% loan on his yacht that's floating across the planet where they can't even uh, couldn't even take it back if they wanted to. And basically, if you're wealthy, you can just get, you know, extremely low interest loans, uh, carry them forever, never ever sell anything and never have to pay taxes and just ride into the sunset. You know, it's really incredible. Someone once said to me, it's, I think it's quite a common saying, it's like if, if you owe the bank a million dollars, that's your problem. If you owe them a billion. Yeah, you broke up, but that's yeah, correct. Yeah, so so how 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 so right? How important? How just going back to the purchase today? How important is it in your opinion? Do you guys do you talk about it? No, I mean I mentioned it, but I mean, listen, Sailor buying Bitcoin is not a story anymore. Like you always know that Sailor's buying Bitcoin. He doesn't move the market anymore. The market's too big now, especially now with all the the ETF buying. Um, I saw that the Bitto ETF is at an all-time high. It's at one and a half billion. Bitto is the Bitcoin futures ETF. It's got 1.5 billion in the ETF. Now, just, I mean, just do, if Bitto, the futures ETF has 1.5 billion, I mean, you'd imagine that the spot ETF would be way bigger than the futures ETF. So that, that could give you an idea of how much money is going to start flowing into the ETF when the ETF actually happens. Yeah, Mario, do you... Mario, do you just quickly want the numbers on the MicroStrategy purchase, just so people know what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's MicroStrategy has acquired an additional sixteen thousand one hundred and thirty Bitcoin for five hundred ninety-three point three million, an average price of thirty-six thousand seven hundred and eighty-five dollars per Bitcoin as of eleven twenty-nine twenty-three. MicroStrategy now holds 174,530 Bitcoin acquired for 5.28 billion at an average price of 30,252 per Bitcoin. I mean, it is way up now. <laughs> There's no joke. But this 30%. is, this is, but this is, this is a big purchase. You're talking about, just to be clear, like this is the purchase today is 10% now. It makes up 10% of the entire holdings. It is a big purchase. If yeah, my math is correct. Yeah, what does it say? They hold 174,000. So yeah, eight, eight. Yeah, and I put 16k. So yeah. about nine percent. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's meaningful. 
Wow. Total side note. I just got a uh, text while I was reading that from my fr- from one of my best friends who's uh, his best friend was randomly one of the hostages in uh, Israel and was released yesterday. Wow. Congratulations. Good news. Absolutely incredible. Right. Yeah. Wow. What good news. Um, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. That was just a hell of a hell of a text to get in the, in the middle of that. So yeah, I think there's a pretty meaningful purchase for him, but you know, like Rand said, we can talk it to death, but we just know where this goes. He's going to buy it. The price doesn't matter and he's not selling it. Uh, yeah, James, I want to, uh, yeah, we can. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, I was going to say, sorry, my, my headphones, my Apple headphones always fight between my phone and my laptop. Because anyone who has a solution to this problem, please come on stage and tell me how to stop. Them. I just just disconnect the laptop Bluetooth. I do it all the time whenever I'm. Yeah, I know, but I mean, surely there's a surely there's a more elegant way than disconnecting your headphones. Yeah, yeah, don't turn on an iPad also because then you get the three way battle. It's really fun. I mean, I'm willing to pay good money to solve that problem, and the other problem I'm willing to to pay really good money to solve is when you lose your credit card, like. Surely you should go to one app and put your credit, your new credit card when you get your new credit card into one app. And that should spam it to all the applications so you don't get a notification from 900 subscription services that you've actually, uh, um, um, uh, uh, your credit card, that you haven't changed your credit card. I lost my credit card. I think I've got like 100 apps that I have to go now, Uber, Amazon, Masari, Crypto, TradingView, I have to go and change my credit card and every single fucking one of these things just because I lost the credit card. And it's like the third credit card I've lost this month. I spend like 30% of my month updating. Why do you lose so many credit cards? Can we dig into this? I mean, you sound like my wife now, Scott. <laughs> I just don't know where all the credit cards are going. Uh, are they being left at restaurants or is it like they get washed in your pants or something? I don't know. I mean, if I knew, I would know where to go look for them. I don't know. I'm just in careless. I have lots of... I, I know. I know. I, I, I know it's a dry news day, guys. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's not that dry of a news. It's actually not that dry of a news day. We do have James here. We were just talking about ETF, so it feels like exactly. that's a natural thing. I think it would be a good idea. Just thinking. James, uh, the question I had for you is what, what Rand was saying earlier, comparing the, the bid or numbers with the with the spot ETF when it gets approved. Um, can you make any comparisons there and try to predict what the inflows will be? Yeah, so... Um, the Bido, yeah, Bido is at a record. He's exactly right, 1.5 billion. That said, most of that money I'm always flew, right in, flew in right away. <laughs> flew in right away when it launched. So it went down and then came back up. Uh, it's seen significant inflows largely because people are betting on this the spot ETF announcement, right? People are looking for exposure. Uh, and one of the ways they're doing it is through those futures ETFs. Um, so Talking about flows, I, I, I did write a note uh, not too long ago about like what we can expect flow-wise. Uh, Galaxy is very public. I love their research paper. Um, Alex Thorne and team over at Galaxy Research covered this. They, they're expecting $14 billion in the first year. Um, I personally think that's a little high. I think it'll be closer to 10 But a lot of things depends what happens with um, GBTC. Uh, you guys were talking a little – people were talking about um, – GBTC uh, and the FTX um, being FTX basically being able to sell their exposure to GBTC now. Um, there's a lot of people that are likely potential to sell that. So like it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen. So like one of the things I like to do is like compare it to the size of the Canadian market and the European market, which already have crypto ETFs, and then look at the size of the U.S. market and say how big is it going to be. So if you just look at the European market, which I do not think is the best 
way to look at this. U.S. crypto ETFs should be around 32 billion. Right now, if you include Bitcoin futures ETFs, Ethereum futures ETFs, and the, the Grayscale Trust, you're already at 31 billion in assets in the U.S. Uh, but in Canada, the number's closer to like 70 billion. And I think that's slightly inflated because I think some of the money that would come to the U.S. has gone to Canada. So I, I, think, I think in the first year, where it's likely to be billions that would come in. Uh, our number we estimated was around 10. Um, but like the main, th I've said it on the stage before, the main thing here is more so that like the people that are going to get access to this, yes, I think there will be hundreds of millions that could flow into these things if they launch um, in January. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see the same sort of hype potentially that we saw with the Bitcoin futures launch that launched at like the hype, the height of a bubble and bull market and Bitcoin mania uh, in late 2021. Um, but the, the main thing here is that over the long term, people that want to allocate to this space, um, this those are the products they're going to use. So there's likely to be like, uh, I don't want to say steady drumbeat, but like a more consistent pattern of allocation um, into these products um, from people like institutions and financial advisors that want exposure to Bitcoin. Yesterday, Mario, you have to clarify for me. We had that guy on stage. What's his name? Hector? Is that the guy's name? No, uh, what are you talking about? The guy who we brought up, he that was mocking Hector. us. That no, wasn't what was the... that wasn't, I think that wasn't Hector. I know Hector. That wasn't Hector. Well, somebody came up on stage and was like just crapping all over Bitcoin and he had Bitcoin in his bio, but then somebody oh, messaged Green, me afterwards. Michael Green. How no, it wasn't Michael Green. Green. It was, there was a guy who oh, said Hector. Michael Green. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hector. Okay. I like Hector. Yeah. Yeah. But is Hector like a huge BSV guy? Because somebody TM'd yes. me yes. said it. Yes. 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 Oh, it makes so much more sense. How did nobody <laughs> yeah. give me that context before that argument? It's in his bio, man. It's in his bio. No, it just says Bitcoin in his bio. Ah, okay. Which is which is which is the which is the misdirection means, that all the BSV and the B real Bitcoin. He means the real Bitcoin. But yeah, he's not. He's even gone a step beyond the real bit. You know, the quote unquote real Bitcoin from uh, Bitcoin Cash to BSV. I, it's fine. I'm just. I, I didn't mean to because he was like all over everything that we said against Bitcoin, and I'm like, you're a Bitcoiner. It's in your bio, and nobody. Yeah. I think still the biggest misdirection we have in this entire space is that Bitcoin.com is a Bitcoin Cash website. But hey, go ahead, Dave. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I no, just but, said but somebody was sorry, literally before, DMing before, me. Before, yeah. yeah, but before, what is it? You were telling us about every one of your DMs. You get the second one today. Um, before we go to Dave, just quickly, James, on the on the inflows, $10 billion, it's not going to happen. But if, if you look at the, the market cap of Bitcoin and you look at the inflows, it shouldn't have much of an impact on price. Like I, I don't say what we're pricing. It's like the value of the the tick of approval, the stamp of approval, seems to be more valuable than the inflows. Is that fair to say, or am I missing something? Yeah. So I've I've been staunchly in the camp that yeah. I mean, theoretically, it's not like one thing that people need to realize is when you're buying these spot ETFs right now, the SEC and the issuers are like haggling over exactly how the back end plumbing is going to work basically like figuring out all these very specific details, right? But at the end of the day, when you buy this ETF, you're buying exposure to spot Bitcoin. If these ETFs want to create new shares, they're going to have to hold spot Bitcoin. So theoretically, if you're buying these things and we're way off and the numbers are more bullish and more flows coming than we think, then it will impact the price. But I tend to agree with you. I think the, the impact of the SEC approving this and basically green lighting, giving, 
it's not really regulatory clarity, but it is a little bit of regulatory clarity in a way. And I think the value of that is greater than the value of the money that's going to pour in. Because I think people are underestimating the fact that there's already $23, 24000000000 billion in GBTC itself. So I think I, I really do think, and I've said this multiple times, I think what you said, the, the, the fact that the SEC is approving this is a bigger deal than necessarily the money is going to come in, at least particularly over the short term. Over the long term, we could be talking many more billions of dollars, but over the short term, it's just, it's just what the SEC's decision is. And what, what, numbers, what numbers over the long term can we expect? Uh, so like, I, I like to look at like, all right, gold ETFs have been around since 2003, right? I think Bitcoin ETFs can ultimately pass them, but I think like getting past that asset level is going to be not so, like that's not something to trifle with. And gold ETFs in the US have about 100 billion. So if you're looking at Bitcoin ETFs in the US in five years, if, if, if Bitcoin ETFs have 100 billion, that would be an extremely successful situation. Um, maybe if you could float up a little bit because the number tends to go up um, over time because markets grow. But um, but yeah, I'd say like I, I don't think we're going to see them cross 100 billion anytime soon unless you see Bitcoin go like parabolic after it takes in billions of flows. Terrence, Dave. Yeah, my only pushback to James is the SEC already approved right uh, the futures Bitcoin ETFs and. That did not cause this rush of cash in the Bitcoin that stayed from institutions and financial advisors. So I think it's also that Fidelity, BlackRock, Invesco, and Franklin Templeton, all of which manage over a trillion dollars, Fidelity and BlackRock manage way more than that, um, that they're legitimizing Bitcoin. And I think that's what's going to cause the price to go up over time. I don't know about the short term. Yeah, so I, I agree with that, actually. I think it's both the SEC and these large TradFi managers legitimizing it. The one thing I would say is that um, the Bitcoin futures ETFs, we were like they blew my expectations out of the water for the amount of money that we thought would go into them. Uh, advisors, a lot of institutions, like those products that roll futures are not products that people buy for long-term buy and hold exposure. Right. They use them really for short term tactical allocation. So this these spot ETFs will be much, much, much more suitable for long term buy and hold investors um, looking to just have Bitcoin exposure in their portfolio. Um, so, yeah, Bitcoin futures ETFs, I'll just say again, drastically outperformed our expectations um, when they launched. So, yeah. So I think that's a good segue to a couple of points I want to make. The, the first point is. That while I agree, James, and I think you know I do, that the longer term impact is far more far more important than the shorter term in terms of legitimization, because after all, you know, global adoption of Bitcoin digital gold is you know fifteen to twenty x from here, even at, at the most conservative uh, valuation. And in order to get to that, you got to reach critical mass. This is a, a step on that road, but economics matter. Uh, cost of buying and selling Bitcoin for the average person is still very expensive. Right, you know whether it's retail spot Bitcoin, uh, you know through platforms. Generally, the cheapest you're going to move in and out is just under one percent, uh, as opposed to in your brokerage account. Now you get exposure, and it will be free from a commission point of view with spreads that are a microcosm. You know, literally ninety five percent less than the other. And yes, there'll be a management fee. And the question is, is how the what competition will do to that management fee so that's going to matter the the fact is when you talk about the futures uh launch uh 
Remember, the futures launch, yes, it allowed people to speculate in Bitcoin going up, but it also was the first time people could short Bitcoin that were in the United States. First time. And as a result, it marking the top was completely rational. Uh, there is no such thing like that. In fact, shorting Bitcoin via futures right now is dirt, dirt cheap because of the, the last fact I want to mention, which is that the premium that the futures trade at compared to spot uh, fluctuates wildly right now, but is actually was very high. So last week when the futures ETF had to roll their futures. Now, for the audience, just to explain, if you're holding futures, you were holding November futures as under the ETF, and you needed to roll them to the December future because the November was going to expire, and you can't afford not to be in the market. That ballooned to a significant premium, almost a 2% premium at, at the worst point last week, and then it happened again yesterday. Uh, when that happens, that's going to translate directly to underperformance. So when you made the point, James, or Terrence, I can't remember which one of you, that it's not a good, the futures ETFs are not a good long-term strategy, that's the reason why. It's because you are paying a tax to be able to stay in futures. It also is indicative, the fact that futures premiums, even now, today, when the market sold off a little bit, the premium dropped to around 320 bucks, which is... You know, about 80 basis points. Somewhere around, you know, based on today's prime rates, interest rates, it should be somewhere between 60 and 70. So, but right now, it's back up to about 1%. Uh, and as I said, it's been as high as 2% over the last couple of days. So people, there's consistent buying pressure into the Bitcoin market from people buying, going long uh, Bitcoin futures. And that, to me, is indicative of people trying to get ahead of all this and having no other way to do so. So the question becomes, obviously, when it becomes a lot cheaper to do so, more and more people will get involved. Yeah, I have, I have no notes. I agree with literally everything that Dave said. The one thing I would also add is that, that those roll costs and the, what he was talking about is the reason that Bido is underperforming spot by over 10% so far in 2023. It's that process of rolling those contracts that has made these futures products inefficient, like he said, and that's amounted to over 10%. So like, yeah, granted, this happens when Bitcoin tends to go on bull runs and 10% might not seem like enough. But if you're investing in these things, and I told you up front that this ETF is going to cost you 10% a year, everyone would like blow their head would blow off. They'd be like, absolutely not. I'm not using this product. So that just, that's why this these things are, are inefficient. When it launched, there weren't even enough futures contracts, or at least short-dated futures contracts, for them to fill the demand. So they were forced to go out to further dated contracts. I mean, it's just, it's just a completely broken. Yeah, that had and, to do and with if you problems. went to tens, of, you couldn't go to tens of billions uh, with the futures ETF and have it remotely track the underlying asset. Yeah, that had a lot to do with the way that. Um, the commodities market and the futures market set up with futures commission merchants. Basically, they also ran out of balance sheet room. Like these futures commission markets that merchants that that facilitate this like creating of new futures, like they literally like ran out of room because um Bitcoin futures, specifically Ethereum futures, they have like the highest leverage requirements um or or um, basically the way that you create these things, you, you have to put up more collateral than you do for other things. So like the whole process, basically the, the flows that went into Bido on day one and day two, basically broke the, the entire system for the better part of a month. Yeah. Carlo. 
question for the panel. Question for the panel. Um, I noticed that Coinbase stock appears to be dumping at the moment down 3%. And is that because of this sell-off that happened yesterday? Or is there something else on the horizon that uh, that you all are seeing? I mean, I wouldn't call 3% a dump. And specifically, I wouldn't call 3% a dump. When if you look at Coinbase in the last month, let me just give you accurate numbers. I just want to make sure that I give you really accurate numbers. Uh, if you look at Coinbase in the last month, you have a move up of... 75 to 126. Yeah, yeah 60, 65, 65%. So I think, you know, if, it, if the stock goes up 65% and then comes down 3% in a month, we have to remember that it's, you know, it's still a stock. It's not a crypto token. It's, I think that, that's a good enough performance for me. Yeah, so I mean, basically uh, just a top off. Yeah, I think historically it was, I mean, historically overbought. Very technically, if you're looking at daily RSI, it was at 88 uh, I think yesterday or two days ago, I think, uh, and it just broke sort of, if you're looking at the chart above 116, really broke a range that was trading in uh, for about over 18 months. So, I mean, that was a, a really big deal. I think that it kind of got above that level. I think, I, I mean, I would be bidding 116, not financial advice, I should say, I am bidding 116 uh, to add to my position if it comes back there. I just think that it's one of those massive charts that finally blew out and uh, it's going to need a little time. But yeah, Carlo, I don't think there's anything fundamentally happening with Coinbase today. I would say the only uh, negative news that we somewhat have um, is that uh, the... Now I'm going to look at... I don't want to uh, misquote his his job. But uh, Wally Adiemo from the uh, Department of the Treasury had made some very, very strong statements yesterday about uh, stable coins... Uh, at the Binance, at the Blockchain Association Summit, Dan Spooler from Blockchain Association sent me this privately, and they tweeted it. Um, and so there's, I think there's a kind of a quiet sentiment that uh, there's going to still be a hell of a lot more coming from the United States government. But I don't think that's necessarily rocking Coinbase today. Well, there's definitely headwinds. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen with the SEC lawsuit, and the future is still not clear. But I, I tend to agree with your thesis that this seems to be like a temporary sell-off in the sense of a lot of profits that, that that were realized in a very short window. Yeah, I mean, Kathy Wood is a mega Coinbase bull, and that hasn't changed at all. We, I think we talked about this yesterday, but you know, if you're uh, a fund, you're going to trade around your position, and there's going to always be a time to take profit, even if you have a huge position. So even she, I, I think, was trimming above 120 uh, 123, 124. I, I don't want to misquote the number, but she sold quite a bit of Coinbase uh, over the past few days. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't view it as investable long term or doesn't still have a massive position. You just, you know, anyone, in, by the way, and Rand's been saying this relentlessly anyone in crypto or in any market, when you're up massively, you take some off the table, no matter what you think is going to happen next. You don't make binary decisions like I'm going to buy everything or sell anything. Just sell 10, 20% of it and like go about your life and enjoy your gains. Otherwise, you're yeah, going to lose it all. Them, do you want to tell them the story of how I learned that list? I mean, we've, I think we've, we've talked about it quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, Rand was all in Luna, obviously, you know, and... Uh, I was on his show and it had nothing to do with Luna. I had no insight on Luna specifically. Was it two weeks before maybe the collapse, three weeks, something like that? And he said, Hey man, you know, I'm, I was on banter and he said, you know, I'm all in Luna. I think this thing, whatever. And I said, dude, like I literally, I think I used expletives. I said, you've got to sell it. Like sell some, 
Dude, I don't. I don't know. It could be. Uh, it could be a fraction of uh, you know Jesus's crown. I don't literally care what it is. You need to sell some, you know, and and get some money off the table. And obviously, then you know, Rand shared the story later that he had lost over nine figures on Luna. But we've all learned that lesson. You happen to learn it, I think, uh, <laughs> on a scale that, that most of us can't comprehend. But I think that almost everybody who's been in this market or any market has learned that lesson many times. But Listen, the Bitcoin could go to 150,000 tomorrow. For all for all I know, some of these altcoins that were massively overbought that have pulled 10x's can pull 100. But like, be happy with your 10 and take some off the table. And I think it's the same lesson. And if you can watch Kathy Wood do it, and and she can beat the drum on how bullish she is on Coinbase, but you see publicly that she's selling, that should be all the uh, well, example so you need. Don't forget, Kathy Wood says she says we re- they rebalance their portfolio. I think monthly. And sometimes, you know, they look at their portfolio monthly and they rebalance it. You know, if you had a stock that's gone up 40, 50%, then it does cause an imbalance in your portfolio. You've got to rebalance. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, absolutely right. Absol- absolutely right. I know Bitcoin OGs, Maxis, who uh, do what you said, which is every time Bitcoin 10Xs, they'll sell some Bitcoin. They'll t- sell 10% of their stack. Yeah, I mean, it just it just Somewhere. makes sense. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people, uh, I, I'm a perfect example, you have a number or percentage in mind of how much exposure you want to a certain market. And then that market blows out and goes 10, 20, 30 X, you find you, you look one day and you're like, I'm 80% crypto, right? Maybe I want to be 20% of my net worth in crypto or 10% or 25. And then all of a sudden, you're 90% in crypto and it's the top, right? That's a, you need to rebalance no matter how passionate you are about these things. And that doesn't necessarily mean you sell your Bitcoin. But my God, if you're like in a meme coin and it's up 100x and you're not selling, I'm sorry, you were dropped on your head. Go ahead, James. Uh, I mean, guys, can we spend two minutes? I can't hear Mario. I don't know if you want to take me down and bring me up. But just before you take me down. He's not talking, spend- so I think we might be all right. Um. Can we just spend two minutes talking about this Elon thing? I missed the what thing? Sorry. The, the Elon thing. Him telling I didn't even Bob see Iger, it. So. Well, he told Bob Iger and other... You didn't see the Elon Musk go fuck yourself? Oh, he it's told that any, Bob any, Iger. Any, any advertisers that, that want to blackmail him and not advertise to kill X to go fuck themselves. And then later in the same interview, I posted the whole video, he says something along the lines of, Anyone that will do that, you've got the clip. Do you have the clip as well, Ryan, of him yeah, saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, play it. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmailing is money, go fuck yourself. So it was a five minute clip. It was a five minute clip where um, Andrew Ross Salkin's interviewing done. And Elon says, uh, if people are going to not advertise in the platform and because of, because of his behavior, they must go fuck themselves. And he carries on. So, and then Andrew Ross Hawking asks him about, you know, what's this going to do to the platform? He says, it's going to destroy the company. But Earth will know that this is what happened. And now yeah, I've got, I've got the exact quote. Let, let me read the quote with Ryan Alley. Go fuck yourself. Don't advertise. What this advertising boycott is going to do, it is going to kill the company, X. And the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company. And we will document it in great detail. <laughs> this is fucking mental. I swear. 
I don't know how he thinks, but okay, it's, a, yeah, he, it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, uh, you're going after Disney. Uh, I live in Florida, so we, we've seen that playbook uh, already. So <laughs> I don't think people are afraid to uh, the, attack Disney, but the guy's got balls the size of watermelons. It's incredible. So now thousands of users are canceling their Disney Plus subscriptions after Elon Musk told Bob I get, I get to go. Yeah, I mean, d- 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 he brought he brought a sub sub penny uh, Dogecoin to seventy nine cents. We all know the power of Elon Musk. I, but that I mean, it's crazy. He's, he's really not playing by anyone's playbook. Clearly, I mean, what does that mean, Mario? I mean, you you're, you you know the guy. Like, do you think that that's going to be massively impactful to X? Do you think that he's actually tanking the platform? He's, you think he just says what's on his mind. He says what's on his mind, and and I'm not just guessing anymore. And, and it's probably the best example of uh, or that kind of could prove this to me is uh, when I spoke to Walter Isaacson when I interviewed him, the guy that wrote the biography uh, spoke privately and publicly to him and he said, Mario, he just speaks his mind <laughs> like, it's no, you think he's analytical? Like sometimes we think like, how does he respond to tweets or messages he puts out? Is there a strategic meaning behind each one of them? He's extremely smart, but he's also just very brash, like he, he does not even think it's as simple as that I don't even think there were, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't even think there was a strategy behind buying this platform. People like say he was playing 4D chess and whatever. I literally think he the sent AI a tweet strategy. saying, nah, yeah, I li- no, I literally think he like sent a tweet saying he would buy it. And then the lawyer's like, you know, you have to buy it now, dude. I read the book like, and that's exactly what happened. And I think it's a very, very, very good book to read. One of, one of the books that I really, really, really enjoyed. Um, read that. You should read that. You should read that. It just gives you an insight as to how this person thinks. He literally let's uh, let's do the same rant. Let's let's do the same rant. So any advertisers that will tell us what to say on this show, what do we say to them, Ryan? Please send money. Uh, please send money to Mario. Uh, but I'm telling you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> telling telling potential sponsors to go fuck yourself is like literally my favorite activity. Have you had us? This is so Scott. Actually, I just forgot. This is like what Scott would do for a hobby. Like he just doesn't go fuck himself for no reason. Like hey guys. Hey Scott, what's up? Look, thanks for renewing your membership. I wonder, I go I fuck yourself. Some, some guy walked past my house this morning and I ran outside the front door and I told <laughs> go, him to go fuck, fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. I, wonder if any, I, went, I wonder if anybody in the panel has any feedback. Uh, to me, it looks like Elon is tired. It looks like Elon's under pressure. He called Andrew Ross Sorkin in the interview, called him Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, the only reason, you know, the only reason why I'm here is because you and my friends, but he's talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin. And he says, Jonathan, and that. And like Andrew, I saw him was like felt really awkward about that. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I interviewed Ben Mesrick uh, for the podcast maybe two or three weeks ago, right when breaking Twitter came out, and that ran. That was effectively his main sentiment of that book, which I, I'm, I'm yet to read as well. But he, he obviously told me about it and was on his roadshow. But he basically said the book's called Breaking Twitter, but in reality, his catchphrase is that Twitter broke Elon Musk. Mm. That that that's what he says. I don't necessarily share that, but that's the premise of the book. Is that basically like he got out over his skis right. and it's just kind of been too much and it's you know, messing with. Let's Tesla. open it to the panel. I see James's hands up, and I'm, I want to hear other people's views. Yeah, I was going to comment on the uh, Kathy Wood stuff, but I this I I will the Walter Isaacson book on Elon Musk was one of my favorite books I read this year. So I don't remember which one of you said it, but full endorsement on on reading that book. It was me. Um, no, it was me. Yeah, full endorsement. Yeah, I was going to say on Kathy, the fact people always like to look at her stuff, be like, "Oh, she's selling this, buying this." As you guys hinted at it, I can't tell you how many like 
tweets and articles I wrote downplaying the media, acting like her selling her Tesla stock means that she's not believing what she's saying, right? So she has limits on how much of a portfolio a certain stock can get. So once it goes over those limits, she sells it as it goes high. And then it went, once it goes below those limits as a percentage of her portfolio, usually around 10%, she buys it. So that's what's happening with these names. So it's almost like she knows what she's doing, James. It's almost like she's done this before. Yeah. It's she, there's one of the big critic critiques of her. She has no risk controls, but like that is a blatant risk control. And then I have, so you have people both on the Bitcoin inside of things saying it's ridiculous that she's selling stuff. She should just keep her full exposure here. And then you have trad five people like freaking out about Tesla and stuff about how big of her exposure is and all these things. But she trades around. She they trade around their positions. That's all that's happening with with Kathy and Art. Um, so I would I would just echo and reiterate some of those things that you said there. Um, but yeah, the Elon Musk stuff is just he looks haggard. Uh, it's. I really hope it doesn't go the the way that it looks like it's going over the next few months. Because he's uh, not going to fight Zuck, Elon, right? He's still fighting Zuck. I don't know. But no, no, that but, was. But, but James, you know that this is not is nothing new for Elon. Like this is nothing new for Elon. Elon often gets himself to these kind of situations, and then he he recovers. It's not not the first time it's happened. Dude, I yeah. bought so much Tesla when he smoked weed on Joe Rogan and the stock went massively down. It was like one of the greatest trades of my life. <laughs> um, going back to, I know we're, we're I got to run soon. So I just wanted to highlight something. Last few times I've been on here, Mario has asked for like timelines. He was, uh, I was talking when he thought that we might see approvals in December. Um, we saw a couple of delays earlier this month on hashtags and Franklin that um, the only reason the SEC would do that would be that they're lining things up for January. Um, essentially, um, we can get into the weeds if you guys have questions, but that was a public question. The delay was though, I I think a lot of people skinned it as like bad news was actually the public uh, commentary period. Correct. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So what it does is basically they were due for decision on January 1st, global X and potentially some others. They didn't come out of the comment period till December 29th, which is a Friday. So basically, if the SEC wants to approve all 12 of these at once, which I've been saying for a long time, we think is what they want to do, there was no period for them to do it. Because if they, there was no time because January 1st is a holiday, so they can't do it on that day, right? So essentially, by going this early, that's when the deadline was for these. They went super early. We're talking more than a month in advance and delayed these things. And within a couple minutes of looking at this, it's pretty blatant to see what's happening is that they're lining these things up. So we had been saying there's a possibility that things could get approved in December. This move basically makes it so I don't think approval is going to happen in December. There might be leaks that it's going to happen or like confirmation, but it's not actually going to happen until January. If it does happen, obviously there's not guaranteed it's going to happen, but the window is going to be somewhere. We don't know exactly. It depends when this filing gets posted to the federal register. I'll know in a few days, but it's likely the window that for approvals is going to be somewhere January 5th ish to january 10th that we'll see these these approvals james wasn't there a new filer yesterday or this week a swiss pando perhaps is the name something like that another one yeah yeah they have three etfs in europe they're pretty small uh they have a bitcoin etf and ethereum etf and then uh, like a crypto index etf that holds six uh digital assets six cryptocurrencies um yeah, they came out of nowhere. So we have 13 filers now. I personally don't, I can't imagine that they're going to be ready to go in January when these things are, when we're expecting them to launch. But yeah, there's a 13th issuer. I mean, I don't know what they're, I, I would love to talk to these guys because I mean, they're coming here to the US filing to go up against Grayscale and BlackRock and 
and arc and all these guys. So takes a lot of balls to do that in my view, but uh, maybe they just need a quick five. Yeah. I have a question for you, James. Yeah. What are you going to do after the the Bitcoin ETF is going to be approved? Have you got anything planned for your retirement or what are you going to do after? (laughs) Yeah, it's been nice. I I went from like being like uh, just crypto hopeful people following me because they liked that I was bullish and everyone else telling me I was an idiot and it's never going to happen to now being kind of like the consensus that these things are going to happen. Um, And there's other people on the stage I've seen that have been in the same camp as me. Um, But that said, it's going to be it's going to be absolutely fascinating the first couple months that these things launch. It is we're calling it the Bitcoin Derby. We're trying to figure out like a better way to to, the Bitcoin ETF Derby. We're trying to figure out a better name for it. But it is going to be cutthroat. Like people are going to be fighting hard for assets and liquidity. Um, you saw a little bit of it with the with some advertising around the Ethereum ETFs, but this is going to be an order of magnitude bigger. Uh, you have a lot of big asset managers that are going to be jockeying for position. There's, it's possible that some of these issuers back down because the SEC is, seems to be like really forcing cash create and redeems only. So we might even see some of these issuers ultimately not launch because they don't want to deal with the cash create process. Um, it's just fascinating. So like I would say after the first month or two, It'll be very interesting to watch just to see how this all plays out. Like, I'm very excited. We've never in the ETF world, you don't see like seven, you don't see multiple products, let alone 11, 12 or 13 launch at the same time and try to compete with each other that are doing the same thing. So it's going to be fascinating. What's your probability that an ETF gets approved in 24? That uh, so we're we're still 90 percent by Jan 10. Oh, sorry, James. Ethereum. East, and I'm saying by 2024. East by 2024. We don't have an official number yet, but I'm probably over. I'm over 50. percent I would say. Um, ETH is different. Um, The SEC is a lot more wishy-washy. They've implicitly. I've written articles. I got blown up by Bitcoin maxis for saying that the SEC has implicitly accepted Ethereum as a commodity, particularly when they allowed the CME futures to list as traditional futures um, when they allowed. Ethereum futures ETFs to launch. All of these things are basically implicit acceptance that they're not going to fight and call ETH security in the courts. Um, so that said, it's not a guarantee that that's the situation. So if the SEC and Gary really do want to fight and call this thing a security or glum on to the pr- proof of stake part of this, they could be. So it's nowhere near as confident as Bitcoin. But my view is that the more likely scenario is that we do see approval. But I know plenty of other people, again, that think the opposite. Uh, in the space, but so I'm I'm kind of on a, on my own here. But yeah, I'm we're probably over fifty percent, but it's not we're not official on anything yet. I, I will after this Bitcoin ETF stuff gets done. Um, I will probably have to come up with a number because that'll be the next step. It'll be watching the Bitcoin ETF derby and then actually trying to figure out and and handicapping whether or not we're going to get an ETH spot ETF. But uh, we have a bunch that are due for final decision in the May twenty something, May twenty third, I think. So it's possible that 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 basically would be the equivalent of ArchGen 10 deadline, um, but for Ethereum spot. Um, and I, I think probably more likely than not, I think the SEC is going to let it go. I've said on here multiple times, I kind of think the SEC has um, they're fighting. They're fighting really hard against this space. Uh, they think a lot of this stuff is securities. And I think they're smartly, in my view, they've kind of accepted that fighting Bitcoin and Ethereum is just not it's an uphill battle that's there that's not worth fighting it's it's just too much where they can go after like they had a hard enough time with ripple like i think they're going to be fine 
just giving up on Ethereum kind of and focusing on all the other stuff in the space. That's that's my view, but yeah. James, if you're getting attacked by the Bitcoin maxis for simply sharing the word Ethereum and the facts about it, then you're doing something right. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. So um, I may be the closest to Bitcoin maxi on stage. Uh, James, I remember your post about why the SEC was basically considering Ethereum uh, not a security because of the Ethereum uh, futures ETF approval. Um, and I thought it made sense. What I will say is that there's one more issue that the SEC could hang on to, to delay. I think it's inevitable that eventually you get an Ethereum ETF, sadly, because I think it's pretty scammy. Um, but they can say that, you know, a lot of the, uh, these Tether is based on Ethereum, even though it's mostly based on Tron these days. And Tether, with their allegations that they've been involved in financing Hamas and other organizations the U.S. considers to be, you know, terrorists and money laundering and all that stuff, with a crypto cleanup that's happened with Binance and, and everything, I feel like um, that they could delay the Ethereum spot ETF some more. And maybe also argue that, hey, we want to see how the Bitcoin spot ETF goes. Let's kind of do one thing, one thing at a time. Yeah, Terrence, I, I don't argue with the premise of what you're saying at all. I think that your take on it is accurate, but it's just funny that, you know, as if Bitcoin's never been sent to anyone, uh, you know, to quote unquote fund terrorism. Or if you want to take that a step further, as if like a terrorist has never used a, I don't know, iPhone to do terrorism, right? So we, we should probably exactly. ban all iPhones because a drug dealer once did a drug deal using their iPhone. It's, it's an agnostic technology. I think, I don't think anyone here believes that Tether is purposefully empowering, especially when you see literally, didn't the DOJ thank Tether last week for helping that, that to freeze yeah, the wallet? Yeah, Tether's been coming yeah. around. Yeah, but they don't need to uh, uh, allow the, the money laundering or funding of terrorism, whatever, but they, they just not doing enough is, uh, is enough to get the regulators pissed off. But maybe I, you could link that to the news today about another mixer yet targeted. Is it like the death of mixers? Is there any mixers that are still legal to use? And should there be? I think they're not legal here, right? But uh, that doesn't mean people can't use is them. It, so is, it just, is it just is the it, US that's, that's blacklisting them? How does it work? So when, when it's added, it's not, like, it's not blacklisted. It's a particular word that you're not allowed to use. What's the legal term? Well, it's sanction. It's, it's basically a so sanction. It's on, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, but is that only for U.S. Was... citizens? Yeah, but does that mean just purely for, for U.S. citizens and that's it? Does anyone follow yeah, because... suit? Do these sanctions apply to any other country? Oh, you mute. Someone muted you, Carlo. You got to unmute again. Who's playing with the mute? Oh, Scott, you're the only one, unless <laughs> Nuss is doing it. Go ahead, yeah, OFAC generally would control what U.S. citizens can do with respect to sanctioned countries or, in this case, sanctioned uh, providers. Um, so I, I don't know the extent to which that would that would apply internationally, but I could see OFAC going and reaching out to, to people who are transacting on these platforms if it any way has a nexus to the U.S., just like they did in Binance. Dave? Dave? Sorry. Um, yeah, I think that you need to, when you look, talk about Tether, you really do need to, to look at the modus operandi of the way the U.S. government approaches things. <laughs> I mean, I, I was actually just commenting about the administrative state on, on 
X about something else. But the fact is, Tether is one of the largest holders of U.S. Treasuries. Tether is a place they can go when they have uh, concerns over wallets, and Tether has proven to be very cooperative with them. Uh, if they did do something to break Tether, then and it's split in and the use cases of stable coins for crypto split into multiple places that would make it harder for them them being the doj the fbi etc to track down bad guys with their cooperation it is a feature not a bug of tether that they can go in and work with law enforcement as much as as people in the in the crypto space don't like it it is a fact it is also a fact that they are that we know the devil they know. They know Tether is buying U.S. Treasuries and holds a lot of it, which is definitely something the government likes. I think that people continually underestimate that. Uh, I mean, look, this is a government who has worked with all sorts of, of people over the years in, in governments that we would look at and want to hold our nose when talking about them because they thought that from a geopolitical point of view it made sense. Pure Machiavellian politics is working with Tether makes sense for the DOJ and therefore killing it probably makes no sense for the DOJ. I didn't. Probably. I mean, is it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I think, like, so it's interesting because, like, you know, the DOJ could have pulled the rug on Binance, but they didn't, right? So they sort of want to regulate the infrastructure providers like banks. And I think that uh, it's probably going to be a similar outcome with tether because they don't want to kill the space right i think just kind of rectifying maybe the illicit activity is their is their main angle and that's fine like that's a good thing right uh i think the only significant thing recently was that in a press release that tether put out they mentioned that they're onboarding the fbi and the secret service i don't know if that's for cooperation maybe it is or probably is um but uh, the only reason why it's significant is because the Secret Service also focuses on counterfeiting. Now, there's an argument that Tether does kind of counterfeit the dollar. And on the treasuries part, like, yeah, they own a lot of treasuries, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a $25 trillion market. It's, I think they have like 74, 75 billion in treasuries. And so it's kind of a rounding error. I don't think that would be the reason why the DOJ wouldn't do anything. I think the DOJ will do something. If they do do anything, it's probably going to be a similar case with Binance. Yeah, there would be a huge fine, right? I mean, you're saying it would be somewhat similar to what happened with yeah, Binance. Yeah. And I think that's... Yeah, I think we saw the roadmap there. For, for sure, right? Because I think that they, I mean, with Binance, they clearly had telegram messages or, or signal messages and a lot of smoking guns um, that even in all these years, we haven't necessarily seen with Tether. And we do see Tether cooperating massively, clearly, as you said, I mean, if you're onboarding Secret Service and DOJ and all the FBI, the Tether is doing all they can at this point, regardless, we can, you know, litigate the past, but regardless, at the present, they're clearly trying to make sure that they uh, stay in business and continue to operate completely. Yeah. But is, is BUSD, is, is BUSD, guys, just sorry, quickly, I forgot to ask yesterday, Tiger, is BUSD essentially dead? I think Binance was delisting it there last couple of days ago. Yeah. Is BUSD is no so, more? Yeah, BUSD, I, I don't think that's really a surprise, like that they kind of died a while ago. Um, 
I am interested to see how they handle BNBs. Like, I don't know if the, because like the exchange tokens in general, I don't know if the government finds them kosher or not. Um, it is sort of a way to bet on the success of an exchange. Like Coinbase has their shares, which have done, I mean, they're not doing great today, but they've done really well in the last month, I think. There was a big narrative change. And look, I was a notable bear at one point on, on Coinbase, but I, I changed when Senator Loomis gave her speech to Congress. I don't know if you guys remember that, but like that was kind of almost an indirect nod to Coinbase and Circle. And I think what will most likely like the, the base case of what will eventually happen is like U.S. DC will come will become more of the the stable coin for the developed world, and Tether might be this like offshore like stable coin where it's you know has a high penetration rate in the global south and emerging markets. Because like here's the thing, you can't pull the rug on this. Like there are you know like okay maybe there's been a lot of illicit activity, particularly on the Tron US. DTs, but like there are very innocent people who hold USDT, right? There are very innocent people who don't know like about this stuff. So you can't just rub those people, right? So that's, I mean, yeah, it, yeah but interesting. I, I don't disagree. It's, I, I think it's been interesting. Well, I think it's mostly since Silicon Valley Bank, but Tether, I mean, is absolutely dominating. I mean, they're about, they're, I think they're at 90 billion mark, market cap now. Will be at a hundred very very soon, and what's, nothing against USDC, but they're down sixty percent in market cap. What's, there was USD, what's USDC at? In the thirties, I think. I, I haven't looked. Maybe high twenties, low thirties. But I mean, I think they they topped. You know, where sixty ish. Either way, uh, I mean, they're down. The top was fifty billion, fifty five billion. Now it's twenty four. Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. So I mean, there's clearly been. Uh, there was this moment, I remember it was either Fortune or Forbes that said, hey, USDC is about to, you know, it's within 10% of Tether. It's imminent that they're going to, you know, the flippening of Tether and USDC. And then I think the banking scare here and then just maybe people viewing Tether as safer than they used to. It's just gone completely the other way. I mean, talking about being a third of the market cap now of Tether, it's not even a competitor. I actually think there need to be more stable coins, to be honest with you. I don't think it's healthy to have a single stable coin being, you know, 70% dominance. Like, I don't think that's healthy. I think eventually. But then, but, then, but, but regulators caused that. Regulators yeah, yeah, cracking down that, on BUSD. I think that that'll change once the stable coin bills get put into law. Um, and they have, you know, like if they want more stable coins on shore, they have to make these bills, you know, accommodative, right? Like, because you don't want like all the stable coins going offshore. Like, you don't want that, right? Because that's what will happen. Yeah, question, Tiger. But what's interesting, I, I don't disagree with you actually on, on getting more. But at the end of the day, no matter how many are created or pushed, there has to be traction and demand, right? I mean, we have yeah. PayPal stable coin being launched. There's other, like, you, you know, Paxos has, what is it, USDP, right? I mean, there, there are a ton of stable coins. Just the fact is kind of nobody's using them. And for BUSD... You guys, we all talk about, obviously, how they were sort of wrongfully attacked by the United States government, or rightfully, depending on how you view it. 
But BUSD somewhat shot themselves in the foot early by when Binance made the decision to convert everybody from USDC to BUSD automatically when you entered the platform and basically fired a shot across the bow of other stablecoins, specifically USDC. Right. I think that that uh, was a was probably a poor decision in, in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I I think so. Like if you're like a market maker and you're you kind of don't have a choice because if you just I mean, they all trade on offshore exchanges and on all the offshore exchanges, that's primary distribution for USDT. It's like 70 plus percent of trading pairs. So it's like. And market makers would love to trade in USDC pairs, but the thing is, is like, you can't, you can't really do it. There's just not like everyone thinks there's a choice, but there's not really a choice. Like if you're on an offshore exchange, yeah. you kind of yeah. have to. Tether's just huge. Yeah. Simon, I want to go to Simon. Simon, the adoption of PYUSD is, is, is surprised me as well. Like, it doesn't surprise you that it's being so slow, almost non-existent. Like you said, it's surprising that with all the FUD um, and, and the fact there's still a lot of unknowns when it comes to, to Tether, still people are happy to, 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 to kind of put all the trust. Become, it's probably the only single point of failure for crypto right now that still exists or the closest thing to a single point of failure. Yeah, I, d- I don't quite see how you achieve that whole Tether being used in Global South and USDC being used in global north because the whole point of the stable coin is that once you've got it off exchange you're able to send it to anybody so if us says um you know all right you have to be registered with us as a securities business because there's securities underlying this or they they have some kind of virtual asset service provider regime but they say you have to register with us if anyone receives the stable coin in which case, in order to ensure that a U.S. person doesn't receive it, you'd have to have so much innovation in terms of on-chain KYC with zero-knowledge proofs that then you have white-listed addresses, and it would just destroy the use case. And so all, all they have to do is, like, all the U.S. has to do is say, if any U.S. person receives a stable coin, then we consider that the jurisdiction of the U.S., um, and then you just destroy the whole thing. I don't know how you'd achieve without putting massive amounts of centralization, in which case you just have a tokenized bank deposit at that stage. Um, and uh, and that would be whitelisted and most likely treated as a security. So it's not as simple as, um, as that. And, it, and the implications are large. Um, because what about digital ID? Well, there you go. Like, well, then you're in, you're, you, you might as well say we've got a private company issuing something that looks like a central bank digital currency. You can have so you can have digital ID, but then without the centralized person, so you've got to have the stablecoin issuer now doing everything that a bank has to do. Um, then you've got to have once you get digital ID, you're then into transaction monitoring, and then you're into filing suspicious activity reports based upon on-chain data. You're so far into the future of what we need to achieve on, on in blockchain technology that it just destroys it immediately because um, there's so much more. I mean, essentially, we've been trying to do all that in the security token industry since 2017, and we're still right at the beginning and no further along. TradFi are all trying to do it. They're trying to own the rails. Um, so it's, it's so disruptive to 
the stable coin that we understand and has got and has got the adoption. With regards to PayPal, that's probably the same reason why, because you know they're a large financial institution incumbent that suddenly wants to issue a stable coin, so they just fire it up like um, like anyone else would, like Binance does on Paxos. Uh, but such a large, you know, you got to think about the adoption might be slow because you've got all the people that have their balances on PayPal. Few of those would may would probably understand what a stablecoin is yet. So you've got to wait for them to educate themselves. They've got to very aggressively market it. Um, and then you've got someone that has tether. I mean, they're not going to swap their they're not going to swap their tether. I mean, who who makes a market from USDT to PYUSD? Is there even a market? I haven't seen one yet. Is there a swap market? Is there a can you do that on Curve in decentralized or is there a yeah, yeah, I have literally no idea. That's a great question. I mean, is P1, honestly, does PYUSD exist? What's the market cap of PYUSD? There you go. It's not even on. Can you see it on Coin Market Cap? It's like, That's like, it's yeah. like 160 million. It's yeah, it like doesn't well. exist. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we just got to understand the issuance model. Is it that you? I don't understand enough about it to, to know what they're. Adoption is, but I mean, they've the, you know immediately they've had so much pushback. I'm sure they're just not ready to market it yet because they're just fighting a bit like um, you know Facebook was or Meta, whatever we call it now. Yeah, I mean PYUSD was kind of a train wreck. I, I mean, even on day one, I remember there was a bunch of fake ones that were made with wrapped Bitcoin, wrapped ETH, so. Well, I, lo- I love I love P- the thought of PYSD. I think it's awesome that you could get get your money out of PayPal and then just clear it on the Ethereum rails with anybody else. But again, it comes down. Yeah, to- I think yeah, I think that's why Mario's scratching his head and saying, "Why hasn't this happened?" Right, Mario? I mean, that's the point. I agree with you, Simon. I yeah, think I'm not sure if it's, but I, I don't know if it's already fully launched or not. As uh, uh, like or, or Simon asked, a good. We see some coin market cap. Yeah, no, I know that the, the market cap the, in the, the headlines, the regulators came at it, so they're probably calming down and trying to figure that. Basically, we got to get the stablecoin regulations. And oh, space- hold on, it is it is on hold on, it is on coin market cap. Oh, is it? What's um, the, what's the market cap? Yeah, has it depeg? Hold on, let me have a look. Yeah, it's trading at fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> it, it depeg to to point nine nine. That's the lowest it's been. Nice. That was the. Yeah, that's, that's a few a couple of weeks ago. But let me see. If what trading pairs account. has it got? And what exchange? Market cap is 100, 160 million. And what trading pairs? So it's on, it's, on, it's on Coinbase. Yeah, Simon, where would it even stuff. have a trading pair on Coinbase? I mean, where, where would yeah, it? Yeah, it's, on, it's, it's got USD trading pairs on Qcoin, Kraken, Coinbase. And what was that? <laughs> USD? Yeah, so you can but convert has, your has, PYUSD to yeah, USD. Yeah, hold on, grade. hold on. I, look, hold on. Easy. Uh, you can you can convert it to USDT on Uniswap, and oh, yeah, on, on Curve as well. And what's the volume? Okay, okay, so there's no USD. trading pairs. The volume, the volume. Yeah, yeah. I've got to get there. So Uniswap, Uniswap, uh, <laughs> Uniswap. Get, your, get out your microscope. You need 30, your magnifying 30, glass. Come back. Thirty-three thousand. Thirty-three thousand dollars, and on Curve is thirty thousand dollars. So that's uh, that's where we're at. Okay, so it's not just Simon. I think your take was the right one, though. I forgot that they sort of became in the headlight. They they were in the headlights of, of regulators. So you got to imagine they kind of did this launch and then said we're going to have to just wait, right, to to push it. That that makes perfect sense. And I think stablecoin legislation will come, and then 
probably they'll push the hell out of it. Yeah, I, I do think that stablecoin legislation it's really really important because it, it's it's such a long shot to expect the regulators to allow for people to just send stablecoins to each other peer to peer as we do today. And I think the U.S. is going to have to do a. Re- I don't know where the lobbying effort is and how far that is, but it's actually a really, really important piece of legislation for our industry. And I'd be absolutely amazed if the stablecoin that we know today is what the U.S. Um, signs off on in the end, because it just goes against every agenda for tax collection, anti-money laundering. Um, but if if you can get, I, I think they're just going to go along the lines of you know, Microsoft's digital ID and trying to figure out how you integrate that in the technology and we'll just be sitting here for six years trying to do what we did with security tokens. Well, the Treasury took a very aggressive, well, I should say Wally Adiemo, uh, and then Ryan, uh, I see you had your hand up right after, but the uh, I guess the uh, Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, effectively, I guess, Janet Yellen's right-hand man. I mentioned this at the beginning, but Dan Spooler from Blockchain Association sent me a DM today. We're going to get him on maybe tomorrow to talk about this, but had some very, very, very strong words on behalf of the Treasury. Clearly, that they're still uh, going aggressively against the quote-unquote you know, terrorist financing. Here's what he said. I'll just give you a quote of what he said. And this was to the Blockchain Association at their conference yesterday. Over several years, Binance allowed itself to be used by the perpetrators of child sexual abuse, illegal narcotics trafficking, and terrorism across more than 100,000 transactions. That, that was his quote. And the, in Fortune, it says, Treasury's Wally Adiemo wants to crack down on illicit finance enabled by crypto. This is a quote, a clear and present danger for national security, and went on to talk specifically about stable coins. So, I mean, that's the Treasury, right? So I don't think we're out of the clear yet for stable coins, unfortunately. No, we got, I mean, you know, clearly there's something with all this Tron, Huobi, Poloniex, Mass, and then that TUSD. Yeah, that then ties into the number one use case for Tron, which is USDT. It feels like you know there's there's those two there's those two final hit lists, and we we can kind of see what's happening with Binance of how they're kind of they're favoring an orderly wind down um, by death by a hundred cuts from regulators, and then the US says this is what we're doing. And then every other regulator says, you're not licensed in our country. You're not licensed in our yeah. country. Slow bleed. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, uh, you had your hand up and then Carlo, please. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, when it comes to stable coins, I think we're extremely early in the market. Like, I don't think that, I think we're so early in the market for stable coins, it's kind of impossible to even say who will be the winner. If you had looked at, at the market cap split between the top stable coins a year ago, BUSD was you know, significantly higher, obviously, than it is today. And I think it's just an evolving market. So I, I do agree we need stablecoin regulation. That'll create a lot of clarity around what stablecoin issuers can and can't do in the U.S. But, I mean, today, the stablecoin, the total stablecoin supply or market cap is is really low. Uh, it's at 125 or $126 billion. I think the, the height of the last market was like $230 billion. And so I think that, you know, we're just, we haven't even seen the fire hose turn on for stable coins in this next cycle. And, and that could be one reason why PayPal uh, stable coin is sitting at such a low market cap. It, it could be because they were subpoenaed earlier this month by the SEC. Uh, that probably has something to do with the way they're marketing it and the way they're showing on their platform. But I just think it's, it's too early 
in in the life cycle to really call a winner and uh and they launched in the bear market right right i mean to your yeah. point right like it's, we were talking about the etfs before bito launches at the peak 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 of a bull market of course you got these massive inflows maybe it's comparable if PUSD had uh, launched when bitcoin was sixty nine thousand dollars, it might be a very different story exactly exactly so i think we're going to see a ton of capital flow into stable coins over the next year or 18 months uh and i think it could look a lot different the, the market cap split. I think right now Tether is about 70% and, and USDC is about uh, just under 20%. And then, a, you know, a bunch of others uh, fill the remaining 10%. So I think that that could shift dramatically uh, over the next 18 months and be fun to watch. Yeah, I just hope they don't That's break it. the product. The way the way stable coins work right now is is perfect. You know, when there's when these activities happen, you can you can suspend the wallet address. So you know, you've got that. You've got that ability to do what regulators want you to do, but at the same time, it's, it's bleeding edge in terms of being able to speed up the way in which you transact versus you know large bank transfers and stuff. So, I just hope I just hope they don't redesign it because I, I think if if we had regulatory clarity on well, if we keep it as it is, are I think just the market cap would just go up and up and up, and you'll have competitive issuers and you'll say do i trust jp morgan or do i trust blackrock or do i trust twitter or do i trust you know tether or binance and you, you just kind of pick between who you trust um and then it will just compete with cbdc's and you'll say yeah screw it i need to trust the fed um, but if we can get that competitive market and, and keep it like this it would just be awesome because then it's like we got the austrian economic stable coin uh, free market, free banking market. I'd love that to be. I just I'm not sure we're going to get it. Yeah, I doubt it, Carlo. Yeah, you know, I got to jump off shortly, but I wanted to jump on what Tiger was saying, and he, he made very good points. And I think it's important to distinguish when you look from the regulatory side, SCC and CFTC, and how they approach blockchain technology. Obviously, it can be argued that they want to they want to kill it in this country to an extent. But I don't get that impression being in the trenches on the law enforcement side. If I look at the majority of the crypto cases that I'm working right now, I have to agree with Tiger. I'm seeing more Secret Service cases being done. And I don't, from my conversations with prosecutors and investigators, they don't want to kill blockchain. It's a forensic investigative gift to them. I think they want to obviously be able to co collaborate with these providers and they enjoy having the ability to subpoena and communicate and get their cooperation, but they're not necessarily of the camp that they want to see blockchain and crypto eradicated. It is a tremendous tool for them to use to track transactions, and I don't see that stopping. No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think they want to kill anything, right? Because there are, like, they don't want people to lose their shirts, right? And there are innocent people involved, but I think that they want to have more control over the exchanges and the stablecoin issuers. And, you know, I think that that's just a healthy, that's just a healthy process, you know? And it, and I I think we're still in the early stages. I mean, even the other day, the, C, the CFTC said they're gonna go after other offshore exchanges, you know? So I don't I don't think it's, it's I think we're just beginning, to be honest with you. I think, we're just just beginning. I think we're just beginning. I just think that the effect on the market will just always diminish as the bigger names have been somewhat uh, yeah. reconciled. 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting market for selling treasuries. So I think I think government, I think governments are just, and and that's where this whole stability thing comes in because once people figure out that you're just going from government issuing treasuries to a blockchain asset, then that's very destabilizing on fractional reserve banking because you're moving to full reserve kind of like in a slow free market way, but it will destroy banks in the process. So they've really got to manage that as like an orderly, an orderly process. And it, it, that's why they're so concerned about it. And it's also fascinating to see how this Binance thing is unfolding because the government has now got really tremendous oversight over Binance, which is going to give them access to all those transactions. And if this is a pattern that we're going to see going forward with these offshore providers, then this is going to be yet another tool in the toolbox for law enforcement because they're not going to be able to go in and do tremendous deep forensic post-mortem audits of all these transactions. And that could prove to be a huge windfall for DOJ when it comes to building cases. You want to go, Terrence? Uh, sure. R real quick. Um, so I think a lot of this is because of the heavy lobbying by Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Coinbase and others. I don't really like these altcoins. I'm a Bitcoiner, but you guys have been very effective <laughs> at lobbying politically. And even Senator Lummis, who is kind of a hero to a lot of Bitcoiners, she's been talking about crypto and other things. So, um, yeah, she's pretty nice negative, though. She's pretty negative. I, 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 I don't disagree with you, but Loomis, I was actually yeah. surprised how aggressively she just came out after. Right. We obviously know the story. Wall Street Journal printed the Hamas ter terrorism funding article. And then uh, Elizabeth Warren and 104 senators and Congress people sent the letter. And then very quick, quickly, chain analysis proved it was wrong. Wall Street Journal retracted, and then Loomis came out of kind of left field when, he, like you said, we kind of she was viewed as an advocate and said the DOJ needs to crack down on Binance and Tether, wrap it up, and charge, right? And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I was actually kind of on the flip side. I was, I was surprised that mm -hmm. she, as an advocate for this, came out so aggressively against all of it, even after it had been proven fake news, using that narrative. Well, like what's interesting is that was... Yeah, so, so, sorry, real quick. Um, I, I'm going to find... She did say something. I'm going to find it and post it in the comment section or maybe a DM it to Crypto Town Hall. But she, she did say something at another time that was very pro-crypto, I thought. Um, and I was kind of surprised. But yeah, the lock... Well, the, well, bottom I think it's the lobbying is still working important. and regulators are, um, are, are going to let kind of crypto survive in some form i think it's just going to be cut down to size and some of the extremes will be cleaned up i think it's important to understand what she was saying though she, she, she was not attacking crypto she was attacking the illicit actors right so she's not a, right so there's a difference i, I agree i'm just saying that she did it in the guise of terrorist financing on the back of an article that had literally just been proven untrue that's what i found sort of surprising i think that about. there was a lot of political pressure uh but i also think that that speech that day right on october 26th and that's why i flipped long coinbase very long is because that was yeah, you and me both buddy yeah <laughs> that was an in direct nod at coinbase and circle right because it's basically like okay here are the bad guys offshore, offshore cleanup for right. sure right and who is who who do you think made that phone call to her it was blackrock who 
who do you think, uh, uh, you know, is in uh, her camp or in uh, the, the, the DC camp, right? It's BlackRock, it's Goldman Sachs, it's A16Z. Who are, who are they all LPs in, Coinbase and Circle? So you have to understand those things as well. So I think that those companies on some level are, are going to be all right. Um, I, it's just a matter of, of right, which comes down to yeah. which comes down to the point before where maybe it's going to be a stable coin for the world and a stable coin for the United States, or platforms for the world and platforms for the United States, and that'll be how it is, right, Dave? Yeah, things are evolving. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that it, it that's overly simplistic. The fact is that people who are in government in agencies tend to care about expanding their power more than anything else. And so you get these crazy scenarios where someone in Treasury talks about national security, despite the national security experts saying, no, no, <laughs> we prefer them to use blockchain-based technology because we can find them faster, better, etc. Um, but I think it's worth understanding that there's a lot of different use cases with stablecoins. I was talking with one of the largest and one of the, another top 10 asset manager who has developed, and they'll tell you, a product. They will not call it a stable coin. Uh, it's Franklin Templeton, the, the Benji. And their comment to me was that it's dramatically more efficient to run a money market fund on chain than it is to run a money market fund the way that you currently run it, where you know you track who it is and, and how you pay things. It's just it's much more efficient. It looks and feels like a stable coin with yield, but they won't call it that way. Why? Because they know it's a security. They know the SEC is going to regulate it. And if they went down the rabbit hole calling it a stable coin, they'd never be able to get it to market. That's because of the regulation, not the way it should be. So when people talk about regulatory clarity, what, why a lot of people in Congress want real stable coin regulation is to provide that umbrella. Because if you think about what you can do with it, you can provide for people who don't mind being known, who don't care about privacy the same way they go to a bank, but want a very fast, efficient way of getting higher yields and being able to move in and out. Well, that's a perfectly reasonable use case. Now, there are other people, as Simon correctly points out, around the world that are much more interested in being able to move small amounts or reasonable amounts of money uh, efficiently uh, across borders dramatically cheaper than the current methods. And that's another use case. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make is there's multiple use cases here. And there should be uh, a way to handle all of those on, under the law. But right now, everyone gets bound up in, in the broader fight, you know, the anti-crypto arm, anti army, basically saying we don't want to allow anything to create clarity. That's really the right. problem. Uh, Terrence and then Simon, and then we're going to head towards wrapping up. Uh, Terrence. Yeah, real quick. Uh, so, Scott, you're absolutely right on Lummis, um, but she did also say some pro-crypto stuff, which to me as a Bitcoiner proves that she's not a real Bitcoiner. She's a politician first. And I posted that in the nest. I hope it's OK. Some evidence. Yeah. What, what did she say exactly? I can't see it on there. Do you, do you know? Yeah, just that things like crypto isn't the problem. It's like the people, some of the actors in crypto are the problem. Crypto assets are not the enemy. Bad actors are. SEC overreaching on crypto guidance, right? 
Like yeah, I, think I think a lot of listen, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think you're get, I think you're getting caught up in the semantics and the nuance. Like it may be like I'm sorry, but you know we get. To, <laughs> I, I know that uh, the judge, jury, and executioners of the Bitcoin Maxi Council literally will deem you not a Bitcoiner for the rest of time because you said the word crypto. But I think that's wildly unfair. Um, I think she, you know, I think her body of work as in support uh, is. Not, massively outweighs her unfortunate i guess for bitcoiners usage of the word crypto you know what i mean like they're pretty interchangeable words for anyone who's not a hardcore bitcoiner at this point and i don't think they like using the word crypto i mean i've watched it's been fun watching the uh, mental gymnastics for people over larry fink you know because uh, he's saying crypto is a flight to quality instead of bitcoin is flight to quality and then the bitcoiners say Oh, he can't say Bitcoin legally. So he's saying crypto because it would be top of his book. And then like a day later files for an Ethereum spot ETF. Right. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying as a Bitcoiner, but like give the, give the lady a break. She's done more in, uh, in, in the government for Bitcoin, uh, than arguably anyone else. I think that's a massive positive. Simon, then uh, we're going to wrap up. Yeah, I just wanted to um, point out that I think with Binance, we've seen the playbook of how you come after these large companies. So if you're if you're a stablecoin issuer outside of the United States and you, you want to bring you want to pull it in. So if anyone does a peer to peer transaction and then you can connect it to a breach of some kind of anti money laundering, connect it to terrorist finance. Um, then you can blame that on the stablecoin issuer. And then once you're in the AML side, you're in a criminal case. And so yeah. once you're in a criminal case, you then make it a fine that is so large that you now need to you know, come into the United States and try and plea. So I think, I, and, and then it goes through the orderly wind down process of a slow shrinkage. So I think what we have just seen with Binance is the playbook for how they would try so many people try and theorize what would happen if 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 tether imploded some would say well great it would be loads of people would buy bitcoin which i think is is true as well there'd be an initial shock but what we have seen from the us is they've they've given us a playbook for how to execute an orderly wind down and how to bring some of the larger players into the yeah, jurisdiction yeah. provided they can connect it to um something really criminal yeah i think it's just it's interesting because most of the quote-unquote illicit activity that tether is being used for is not it's not like that's happening directly from tether through the people who are minting and redeeming right you're talking about something that's happening on exchanges where tether doesn't theoretically have the control and to your point simon when silicon valley bank went down and all the fud around usdc happened i very publicly it's exactly what i did i bought bitcoin Right. I, I converted my USDC into Bitcoin, uh, thinking, by the way, not to say I'm a genius because I'm not thinking that I was buying 20 or $19,500 Bitcoin and oh well, it's going to go to like 17, 16, 15 on all this bad news and it went right to 25. So I got very lucky in, in that regard. But that was my knee jerk reaction anecdotally was, well, if USDC is not going to be safe for a couple of days, I'm getting into Bitcoin. You're correct. I think you're actually correct. Yeah, guys, I think, uh, Mario, I think that uh, we did a great job here. Uh, wrap it up and, and run it back tomorrow. So, uh, everybody, thank you so much for joining. Uh, pleasure. Great guests. And look forward to seeing uh, what the market throws at us so we can discuss tomorrow. Bye, everyone.